Someone once said that circumstances are those nasty things you see when you get your eyes off God. I think that's so true for myself as I consider it. Boy, when I start fixating on my circumstances, it brings a lot of worry and trouble into my life. I remember as a kid singing that song, My God is So Big. I am sure many of us have either sung that or taught that to our children or in some Sunday school or children's church. And we sing that my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. We've heard that. Yet somewhere along the lines, we grow up. Somewhere along the lines, we sit there and that truth just fades from our minds. Our circumstances begin to get bigger than our God. Our circumstances become stronger and mightier than our God. And then some realities set in. Because as we start to look down here and not look up at him, we find ourselves asking some questions. Well, God, have you forgotten me? God, have you forgotten that I'm here, that Josh is here, and have you forgotten about me? Have you ever been in a situation where you're just wondering if the Lord remembers where you're at? You feel much like Noah, floating around, rocking around on that ship with all those animals and mooing and everything else under the sun and going on, and, and here you are, wondering, does God remember? Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 says, and God remembered Noah. He never forgot about him, but often in those moments of circumstance we do, You ever sit there and go, God, why won't you help me? God, why won't you help me? God, why why won't you just help me through this situation, this trial that I'm going through? Uh, We have our prayer list that's out in the lobbies, and it lists a a number of needs of folks that are going through some difficult times right now. And sometimes in the midst of those situations, those days, honestly, we're just sitting there and we're asking God, please help. Please help. And then I think we get to this point, and it's almost like this just genuine, genuine question. God, do you see me? God, I just want you to see me. I want you to see this heartbreak, this health. My child uh, has gone wayward. You know, we look at our nation right now, and and I don't know about you, but it breaks my heart to see some of the choices that are being made, some of the situations that are going on. And we go, God, do you not see? Do you not see what's going on? Do you not see me in the midst of all this? What am I supposed to do? I think sometimes our circumstances tend to overwhelm us. I think sometimes instead of looking at God and how great he is, his majesty, his glory, that we find ourselves sitting there and just taking our eyes off of him and looking at those circumstances and, and, and realizing just for us that we are looking at the wrong thing. Israel's rebellious, idolatrous ways brought about their captivity. Uh, They had been unfaithful to God in their worship to him, and that had earned them captivity, being taken out of their land, out of that promised land, and being brought into a land of exile. And there following the Babylonian captivity, God graciously allowed his people, after spending 70 years there, 
God graciously allowed his people to come back home, to return. But as they were starting to return, they weren't looking at God. When they started to return, they started to look at all that they're going to have to do. They found themselves beholding their circumstances. And quite honestly, the Jews did have a rough road ahead of them. As they returned to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, they were few in number. You only had that remnant going back. They're facing a long and difficult journey. The prophet Isaiah records their, uh, their mindset, if you will, kind of the questions that they were asking. And it falls along the lines of questions we considered earlier. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 27, it says this, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? You know, all they could do in that return back to Jerusalem, all they could do was just look at themselves, look at their own circumstances. And when we do, when we view God through our circumstances, God is small. God is small. We lose perspective of God's greatness. We miss seeing how good God really is. And in Isaiah 40, God begins to respond to Israel who are beholding their circumstances. So take your Bibles. That's where we're going to be today is Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to work our way through this uh, passage of Scripture. Isaiah 40 is rather interesting. This is actually when they would have received this from the prophet Isaiah, this would have been given out about 150 years before that remnant would even need this encouragement. So even before they were going to be going back, God provided them with this encouragement knowing what they would be going through. Uh, There's a great truth there. God has already provided the way. No matter what you find yourself in today, I don't know what you may be going through, But I want to encourage you today that God is there, that God is great and he is ever good to us. And this chapter, Isaiah 40, it actually marks a a distinct difference of tone. Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, it really consists of this judgment. It has this really more gloomy overtone. But when you get to chapter 40, it's totally different. It changes. Look with me there at Isaiah 40 and verse 1. It says this, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Here it is, God is seeing this remnant coming back. And he knows the encouragement that they're going to need. And there's this great transition Isaiah's been working through. And then he comes to this part here where he says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Isaiah calls Israel to not fear and to look to him. Look with me at verse number 9. Verse 9 says, O Zion, that bring us good tidings. Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. This group is coming back. They're going back to this land. Some never having even been there, being born in Babylon. Now they're coming back to the promised land to Jerusalem, to begin the process of rebuilding the walls, of rebuilding the temple. And I would imagine there was a lot of fear, a lot of unknowns. 
Some of you are new to Campus Church here this summer. You've left your home. You left what you have known, your routines, your comfort. And now you're beginning a new journey here. You're starting as a student at Pensacola Christian College. You're coming to a new land. And sometimes there can be fear there. Sometimes we can be greatly concerned about what is to come. How am I going to be able to do this? How am I going to get past freshman speech 101? How do you do that? How do you talk in front of people? And all those thoughts start flooding into our mind, don't they? You take on a new job, a new position. And all of a sudden, they start putting projects on you. And you're like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. I, I, no, wait, what are you doing? They said, well, you got the title now. Here's the work, you know, and they're all excited for you. And you're thinking, Lord, what did I just get myself into? Or you leave that doctor's office with that diagnosis that you never expected would come. And the fear begins to set in. And what the Lord does here is he anticipates that and he says, be not afraid. He goes on and and say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. All right, be not afraid, behold your God. And that there would be the title of this morning's message. Behold your God. I believe in the midst of any uh, circumstance we may find ourselves in, when we're sitting there and we take our eyes off of God and we look at the circumstances, then we find that God is small. But when we look and behold our God, we find that he is great and that he is good. And this is what Isaiah is going to do. He's going to get this remnant of people. He's going to get them to stop looking at their circumstances and to put their eyes on their God. In verse number 10, he says this, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Our God is not weak. Isaiah reminds the people who God is that he is strong, that he is almighty God. He goes on in verse number 11, and he says, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Though he is strong, though he is almighty God, he has a great heart for you and for me and for us in the midst of those circumstances. You find here the description is this of a a shepherd with his sheep, of gathering them up in his arms, of feeding, of caring. Boy, I look at that there and I see that last part and she'll gently lead. I, I cannot recall a time in my life, in my Christian life, that God was ever harsh with me. That God ever sat there and said, Josh, what's wrong with you? I never had that moment. God has been so gracious to me. Now, maybe I felt like that. But when I've looked at it and reviewed what God has been doing in my life, I don't find that he's ever been harsh with me. When he leads, he does so gently. Maybe sometimes he's looking at me and shakes his head and says, Josh, really? Again? Come on, this way. Don't wander over there. 
That's trouble. That's danger. That's not good. Josh, this way. And here I come, you know, coming down and, and like that little sheep wandering back to the fold, back to my God, back to my shepherd. And here it is. Isaiah is reminding them, getting them to bring their focus back to who God is, that he is strong, that he has such a loving care for his people. And so when by faith we view our circumstances through God, we find a loving and great God bigger than our circumstances. And God is infinitely great. But sometimes because of our circumstances, our image of God, our concept of God is not. It lessens who he is because we're focusing on the wrong thing. And this being true, we must constantly consider who God is. We must meditate on him and how he has revealed himself in his word. And so this is what I want to do this morning. I want us to take Isaiah 40 and continue through the rest of this chapter and look at the greatness of God. Because in the midst of your circumstance, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of whatever change is coming your way, I want you to know that God is great and God is good. So let's begin here with the first thought. Behold the greatness of our God. Behold the greatness of our God. Isaiah has this beautiful poem here. This beautiful poem about the greatness of God. And it really helps us to grasp who God is. And what Isaiah is doing is he is affirming the greatness of God. He's drawing us there. Look with me at verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scale, and the hills in balance? Well, what do you find here? You find this great God, this all-powerful creator of the universe. The one who has created all things. You see right here uh, this idea of this creative power that he's measured out the waters in the hollow of his hands. Now, I, I, I did some research. I went and did some research to try to figure out how much water is in this world, on this earth. And again, all you're going to ever find is estimates. But here's the estimate uh, that is given. And it says this, 326 million trillion gallons of water on earth from the oceans to the fresh lakes to the swamps of florida and louisiana all those places everything uh, to the puddle in your yard okay you have all of that water all of it together and it's estimated 326 million trillion gallons of water and look with me at verse 12 again who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand his hand right here, all that water. You begin to sit there and envision that. You begin to see, wait a second, God was there and it's like he scooped out that water and poured it out on this earth. I mean, in the hollow of his hand, he measured it. It goes on and Isaiah says he meted out heaven with the span. Meted, it means he marks off the heavens. He set those, those boundaries and when he's talking about a span, he's talking about the span of a hand's breadth, which would have been about nine inches is what they would have considered. That means in the scope of everything in our universe to God, it's only the length of his hand. 
To you and I, we sit there and we're mesmerized by those NASA images of the far deep reaches of space. We're overwhelmed thinking about the vastness as it continues to grow, but it's never going to un, or outgrow God. To God, the vastness of the universe is a mere hand width. Goes on to say, who has comprehended the dust of the earth in measure. I don't know what it is uh, about dust. You can go, you can dust your house, right? You can sit there and wipe down all those cabinets, wipe down all the furniture. And, and the, the one dust that I just, you know, the one dust that I, I just never really notice until it gets really bad and it starts coming down is from the ceiling fans. You know that dust up there? And then you get up there and you're like, dude, what is this? It's like a mountain of dust up here. You know, you start wiping it off and it's clumping down and you're like, oh, this has been blowing around, you know? All of that, you see that dust. Now think with me for just a moment that God, he knows that. He comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. In a measure. And the word measure there has this idea of small measure. It's a third of a measure. This is something small to God. To you and I, when we start dusting, we look around the dust when we are traveling or whatever, it gets on our cars, it's everywhere. But God knows the number of dust in this world. And to him, it's just something small. It's something small. Goes on and says, weighed the mountains in scales. He knows the weight of all the mountains. But all of this here, there's something that we can't overlook. And we might look at all those things and think, okay, this is great. Wow, God's, God's huge. God's great, right? And I mean, if all these things are just the water, hollow of his hand, if he knows all the dust into him, it's like some small measurement. If you go and he, the heavens are just a span of his hand. But do you notice that he is the one who has measured it out? He is personally involved with his creation. He is personally has care for you and what you're going through. We go on in verse 13, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord our, or being his counselor hath taught him. With whom took he counsel and who instructed him, taught him in the path of judgment, taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding. God knows everything. He has no need of counselors. You know, I need counseling. Now, not the kind you're probably thinking of, but I do need counsel. I need advice. I need help because I don't know everything. And I have been in situations where I have gone and asked for counsel, for help. And others have come to me and asked for counsel and for help. But God knows everything. He has no need of counselors. He hath directed. It says there in verse 13, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? The idea, who has marked out the way for God? Who has staked out the signs and said, God, this is the way you should go? Nobody's done that. He goes on and says, uh, or being his counselor, hath taught him. Who imparted direction or advice to God? God, let me tell you something. Let me give you some advice here, okay? How often have you received advice from somebody that you don't wish you didn't give the advice, okay? That has happened. But for God, nobody has given him direction or advice. Talks about this path of judgment in verse 14. Uh, who took he counsel and who instructed him, taught him in the path of judgment. 
hey, God, this is the manner of life. This is the right way to go. This is what you should do. This is how you should live. This is just the manner of life. Who's done that for God? No, he wrote the book on the way of life. He is the one that knows those things. Talks about the knowledge there in verse 14 and taught him knowledge. The idea behind that phrase is this idea that uh, who has schooled God? Who has set him down like a student and said, God, open up your syllabus to lesson one, okay? And who has done that? Answer is nobody. Nobody has taught him. And then he goes on and says, show to him the way of understanding, the idea of telling God something new. Showing him how to use logic and reason. Who has done that? And of course, all these questions here, would Israel would have said, well, no one. No one. No one's done that. Why? Because God's wisdom supersedes man's wisdom. I mean, our wisdom, the best of us, the combined knowledge, all of Google, okay, all of that there cannot even begin to compare to God's knowledge and his wisdom. Romans 11 says this, O depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? So let me ask you, let's bring this down to where we're at. How then... Could you or I say to God, we know better? We know better. Lord, it would be better if it was this way. It would be better if our country was doing this. It would be better if, if I didn't have to put up with that. And we start looking at it and we start telling God, hey, let me tell you the way my life should go. Instead of trusting him, allowing him to gently lead us. Oh, Lord, I don't want to go back and repair the wall, the temple. God, it's a mess over there. This is going to be hard. I'm already tired. I'm already faint and weary. I don't want to go back. And yet here it is. The God of all wisdom looks at us and says, I know the way. Go. I know the future. Go. We find here in verses 15 and 17, he says, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. And if I could just stop for just a moment. You know, I started looking up all those little phrases we hear. Skin in the teeth, you know, drop in the bucket, all those little things. There are so many colloquial phrases we have today that are taken from the word of God. And here's one of them here, a drop of a bucket. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. And are counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And then and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast there sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing. And vanity. You're getting the idea here that things are pretty much nothing to God. Okay, all these nations, all these people. But again, consider those words to describe his rule, his sovereignty over his creation. Man, we find we're just a, a drop of a bucket. Nothing. We find that a small dust, this is talking about the dust that might be on a scale. Okay, you're sitting there and you say, oh, you gotta brush that dust off. 
You know, they didn't do that. I mean, when we go to the supermarket, we're not looking to see if that fruit scale has, you know, any dust on it, okay? We're not checking, oh, there's dust, it's going to cost me more. Now, maybe that's true today, but, but anyways, you know, as you're cleaning that off, it, we don't do that. We're not that concerned. It's just dust. It doesn't weigh anything. It doesn't make a difference. He says, again, he says, um, nothing. In verse 17, they're accounted to him less than nothing. What is less than nothing? I mean, all the nations here before him, before God, are nothing. Can you think of a day in the future when all nations will gather against God? And what will happen? He will defeat them. He will destroy them because they are as nothing. You know, there is no single nation in man's history, the Greeks, the Roman, the United States of America, that could ever stand before God. He is so great, and, and mankind here could not make any suitable offering to him. Uh, here they chose one of the best places there in Israel, uh, um, Lebanon. It's not sufficient to burn all the cedar wood there, everything that was there. None of that was worth it. All the beasts thereof, they wouldn't be sufficient for a burnt offering. There'd be nothing suitable for God. All nations together are of no account. But this is what I am reminded of. <laughs> the, that despite all of that, that God is still sovereign. Even though you and I might get frustrated with where things are, we might get upset with wars that go on. We, we might wish things would be different. May I remind you that God is in control. He is sovereign. And he can use any president to accomplish his will. He can use any world leader for the good of his people and the progress of his work. Let's think about this for just a moment. Consider here in this passage, who was the king that was sending Israel back, giving them permission? That was Cyrus. Cyrus opened up the door for the Jews to return back to their homeland. In other cases, there, there was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was used according to God's will uh, to get the people to go. And when they left, did they leave empty-handed? Did they leave with nothing? This nation that tortured them, this nation that made their work so hard. And yet, what do you find? You find them leaving uh, with so much stuff that the Bible says that they spoiled the Egyptians. You go to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, you sit there and consider all that he did. You consider all the ways that God used him in the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think of King Darius and Daniel when he made the proclamation that everybody should worship Daniel's God. You have all this that God is using these world leaders for the good of his people and for the progress of his work. This is why Solomon wrote, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. I have to remind myself of that because I do get frustrated. I do get irritated. And sometimes I just got to take a break from the news because of it. 
because I began to look at my circumstances. I began to behold them in my eyes instead of beholding my God and seeing his greatness. We continue on uh, through this here, um, the next verse, verse 18 uh, through 20. Isaiah begins with this, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. All right, now considering all this, what do we see in these verses? That God is incomparable. That he is beyond man's imagination. You know, considering all that we've been seeing here, who compares to God? This is the point of those questions there, saying, go ahead. What can you think of? What could you put together? What could compare to the one that can take all the waters of this world and put it in his hand, with his other hand measure out the heavens? Who do you know that's like that? And then Isaiah, in this rather satire moment, in this very Babylon Bee moment, he goes in and describes the silliness, if you will, of a graven image. He describes here this workman that melteth the graven image, that casts out this little statue. And and then he begins to uh, spread it over with gold. He's pulling gold over it to make it look shiny and something special. But then, keeping in mind that this poor thing can't even take care of itself or carry itself about, get itself around anywhere, they they put a chain so they might be able to wear it around their neck, okay? All of this they're doing, and and again, he that is so impoverished, so poor, they had no oblation, nothing to give, chooses a tree that will not rot. You're looking for something that's going to last. You're like, oh, I don't want it to rot, so we've got to find something good. I don't want the, the little idol collapsing in on itself. And Isaiah's sitting there, and he's drawing this out. And he's saying, what can compare? What can compare? He is the one and only true God. There is none like him. Isaiah would later write, I am the would write these words, he said, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girdeth thee, though thou hast not known me. He said, goes on and says, for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it and hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. So the question comes back to you and to me. Why would we seek to replace God? I mean, seriously, what would we replace him with that could even be comparable? How could we go and say, okay, this is close. Could anything be close? Could anything be like God? You know, we look in our world today and there are just just so many religions out there. Some that have millions of gods. I'm trying to, in my mind, fathom, how in the world would you worship millions of gods? How would you go about doing that? And yet this world's religions, they have all these different gods to all these different things. 
but none of them can compare to the one true God. And this leads us to verses 21 through 24. He says, have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. These verses here bring us to the, the point that God is king of kings. He is the transcendent, eternal sovereign of this universe. And revealing himself and in his ways in the world to us, God is pointing out to us the limitations that we have. I mean, my strength is limited. The older I get, the more it dwindles. I go out and I go running and I get excited when I can you know, run and, and do a 5K while my son's out there uh, running and doing twice that in less time than I. And why is that? Because I know as the older I get, we begin to slow down. Our bodies begin to break down. But that's not true of God. He is reminding us in these verses here that he is God and we are not. That God is sovereign over creation is a revealed truth and every person knows it. You know, there are people here that... Uh, um, have met the atheists, that have met the Bible skeptic, that have gone and talked and engaged them. And I want you to know that everyone knows that there is a God. And that's why man seeks to occupy that God-shaped hole in his heart. That's why they go after things. That's why they come up with these new idols, religions. That's why they go after the riches of this world. They're trying to fill that God-shaped hole in their heart. The psalmist said this, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Everyone knows there is a God. Everyone knows that there is a King of Kings. It's in our hearts. We know it. That God is sovereign over creation is evident by His greatness. He's the one that sits upon the circle of the earth. The inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. Little, small grasshoppers. God is the one that sits on the circle of the earth. I'm talking about that he is the one over all of creation. And there we find, again, that he brings the princes to nothing. Nothing. The judges of this earth are vanity. They're worthless, easily removed. He talks about that they're like stubble, the idea that worthless husk of the seed, and it just blown away, just gone, 
of no use. The psalmist said, for all the gods of the nations are idols. The word has the idea of worthless. And I love this. He continues, for all the the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Made the heavens. It's like, yeah, you know all those idols you guys worship? Yeah, they're nothing. Worthless. But our God, he made the heavens. He made the stars also. Those wonderful lights in the sky that we are so amazed by and so mesmerized by. That God is sovereign over creation. And it's evident by the fact that he can remove and give authority. He is the one that brings into power and removes from power. It reminds us that let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Honestly, who else would we trust? Who else would we turn to? He is the great God. God is in control. He ends with this in verses 25 through 26. So whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He hath called them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Growing up in Northern California, I had numerous opportunities when I was living up in the mountains there of Northern California to look up to the sky and see all the stars. We, where we lived, could see the Milky Way and see that cluster, that strip in the sky. Y'all, that was something incredible. I love it. I love to be able to look up at the stars and see them. I love seeing the Milky Way. I mean, I, I would always look up. And I would always look and see that. And I was like, man, that's so cool. And I would think about what was beyond those stars. And here the Lord says, look, lift up your eyes on high. Look at the stars. Behold the one who's created those things. Certainly the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. And God does the directing of the heavens. God is the one that knows their number and calls them by names. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Omnipotence alone could have created the starry host, but omniscience is required to know their number and their names. When it talks about this not failing, not a one faileth there at the end of verse 26. It has this idea, uh, it's actually a military term, it has this idea of fighting together in a unit. They're acting as a group. There is not one star that doesn't act in the order that God directs. Now I look at all of this here, to this remnant of people that are coming back, they're coming back to this land, and Isaiah's going, here's your encouragement. Look at how great God is. Look how great that he is. Behold your God. Well, there's one more thing I want us to look at, and that is this. Behold the goodness of God. Behold the goodness of God. Isaiah concludes with some of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. I don't know about you, but in the times when I'm running low, when things are just not going well for me, when my circumstances are starting to become my fixation, boy, I come to these verses. I come to these and I look at them and I read through them. Remember what Judah or what Israel had said in verse 27. Why sayest thou, Jacob, and speakest over Israel? My way is hid from the Lord. God, you've forgotten me. You don't see me. My judgment is passed over from my God. You've forgotten us. You haven't helped us, God. 
I'm just looking here at my circumstances and they're overwhelming. Then Isaiah reminds Israel, and thereby this, in verse 28, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. And you know what he does? He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. He is the everlasting God. Therefore, there is no time when he is not. He is the everywhere present God. The ends of the earth are his. Therefore, there is no place where he is not. He is the ever all-powerful God. He is never faint or weak or lacketh strength. He is the ever all-knowing God. He does not lack understanding or knowledge or the way that we should go. Isaiah is reminding them about the greatness of God, then he comes to remind them about the goodness of God, that he's always going to be there. Whether you're a summer worker, whether you're new staff or faculty at PCC, whether you're new to Pensacola, whether you're new to this church, God knows who you are. He sees you. He knows what you're going through. All the challenges that you may be facing today, I want you to know, church, that God knows them. And he knows the way that you should go. And this is the goodness of a, God, uh, of a great God. That he increases our strength. That he gives us what we need to accomplish what he has called us to. The idea of wait there in, in verse 31 has this idea of to hope. You know, my hope is not in a better tomorrow. My hope is not that gas would go back down to $2 a gallon, okay? My hope is not in a political party. My hope is in the Lord my God. My hope is in the one who created all things. The one that sitteth on the circle of the earth. The one that oversees. The one that is truly in control. That his will will be accomplished. That is who my hope is in. And then it says here that he, the Lord, shall renew their strength. You know what he does? This word renew is so cool. It talks about exchanging. Exchanging. That God would exchange our meager strength. And you know what he does? He gives us his. He said, no, no, no. You you don't do this on your own. Don't Don't do that. No. Here, use my strength. Now, if we have God giving us the strength that we need, is there any circumstance that you or I could not go through? Is there any situation in our lives that we could not do what God has called us to do? God is saying, use my strength, my power. And you know what it does? It transforms us. It helps us to do something that we've never thought we could accomplish. It turns us into this idea of a different strength that we would mount up with wings as eagles that we would be able to accomplish that work he has given to us. 
The idea of run. God gives us what we need to meet the exceptional demands of this life. The harder times, those difficult times, those exceptional moments in life, when we need more strength, God increases it. God gives it to us. When we're faint and we're lowly and we're saying, Lord, the labors of this life, the toil of all that I've been going through, boy, it's getting me down. God comes along and he gives us the strength that we need. He encourages us. And then the idea of the walk and not faint. That God gives us what we need to meet the ordinary daily grind, the mundane moments of this life. This is what God does. This is why Isaiah looked to this crowd of people and, and with this prophecy here and saved this for them essentially and, and they received it at that time that they needed it. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith uh, the Lord. And here it is that they were called to behold their God, to focus on his greatness and goodness. Carl was traveling through the southeastern coast of Sweden when he came upon one of the storms there. And this was such a severe thunderstorm. The rain pelted his face. His clothes were soaked as he's trying to travel to get to his destination. Uh, with the wind just made each step difficult. And he had to take great care to make sure that each step was sure. As the storm ended, Carl felt the warmth of the sun breaking through the clouds. He began to hear the birds as they began to sing. He began to, uh, to see all this, and he was taking it all in. And that scene, that moment, just made him fall to his knees in awe. He wrote this poem, uh, and it began with the words, O store good, O mighty God. Several years later, um, Carl unexpectedly heard his poem uh, being sung by a congregation. I, he had published it, but it, it, he found a, this congregation singing his, his words to this old Swedish folk melody. Over the next 70 years, this little poem uh, would evolve, and it would be set to music in four different languages, Swedish, German, Russian, and English. A Russian missionary, Stuart Hine, heard this Russian version of Carl's poem. And he heard those thoughts, or he heard it and he wanted to translate it into English and he added some of his thoughts to it. He eventually shared it with the Billy Graham evangelistic team. And George Beverly Shea, the great hymn writer who wrote hymns like, uh, I'd Rather Have Jesus and the Wonder of It All, he got that and he read it. He read the song and he loved it. It was in 1957 at the great New York crusade that George Beverly Shea, he sang this hymn and has told some 93 times during that crusade. And back in 1957, it was a new song to most Americans, but today it has become one of the church's most powerful and moving hymns. And the words of the song go like this, and you'll see them on the screen. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands hath made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and see the brook and feel the gentle breeze, and when I think that God, his son, not sparing, 
sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. If the God of Israel promised strength and encouragement in that day, how much more will he do for us today? Is God faint in his power? No. Is he weary in his ways? Never. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Christian, our God is great and always and only good. Get your eyes off your circumstances and behold your God.